Welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. Hello, my friends. Welcome back. And if this is your first time, thanks for listening. This episode is a very practical one regarding your career in marketing. Regardless of your background, but particularly if you are a scientist or you know a scientist who would like to move into marketing, you will get some solid advice, not just on transitioning to marketing, but also advancing into executive positions. This was just a fun conversation for me, and I think you'll enjoy it as well. Now, let's jump into it. Okay, my guest today is Steve Coolish. Steve is the GM and Global Strategic Marketing Lead at Fluidime. Following stints at BD and Biorad, Steve, welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio. Thank you, Chris. It's good to be here with you. We're going to talk about your career path because uh, yours seems uh, exceptionally intentional. I'll put it that way, for scientists transitioning into the business side. To start out, tell us about what your job is right now. What are you responsible for? I am the general manager and head of strategic marketing at Fluidime. And while I have direct accountability over the strategic marketing function, marketing communications, uh, corporate marketing, and digital marketing, I also have responsibility for the P&L, the business. So this is achieved through working with different groups across the organization, whether it be finance, research and development, or operations organization, regulatory quality, to align them to our portfolio investments. So at the end of the day, I'm accountable for deciding which programs we invest in, where we allocate our money on an annual basis, do we invest in marketing, commercial, research and development, and if so, to what degree, to what programs, and then we manage that over the course of the year to ensure that we hit our financial targets. It's like I have this core f- direct function, but then I have a matrixed influence function. It can be a challenge, it can be fun, but at the end of the day, it's what I signed up for, and it's been a real good experience so far. So it's a little exceptional that you run marketing and the PNL, right? I've never seen that. So with with product marketing, I like to look at I like to look traditionally at product marketing as almost like mini GMs for a product or a portfolio. Marketing managers, you have to make decisions around what's your strategy within a product line as it relates to market. And so for me, it became a little bit more of a natural fit because over the years, I've had to make those sorts of decisions and trade offs in product marketing. And along the way, adding a little bit of knowledge here and there around finance, around business, enabled me to put the pieces together to facilitate my abilities to do this job. So you started out as a scientist, as an undergraduate at least. Yes. Tell, what did you study at Davis? So my degree was biological sciences with an emphasis in applied microbiology, which I think was almost a precursor to probably production biology, so fermentation, drug development. So really just how do you leverage biology into microorganisms to to create biological molecules. So it was in the early days of biotechnology. So I I do believe Davis has a biotechnology degree now. So I think it was cobbling together the different classwork to to get that kind of a degree. 
Gotcha. And so did you have a career plan as an undergraduate? Because I was a biology major and mine was do something in biology when I get done. <laughs> that was it. So I, I came into Davis pre-med like a lot of people did. And so I wanted to be a physician. I wanted to be an ED physician, actually. So I figured that's where all the action was um, and the excitement was. So I'm a little bit of an adrenaline junkie just in my personal life and by nature. And after I realized that medicine might not be the path for me, I started getting really interested in virology, more so because it seemed to be one of the more edgy, exciting parts of biology. You look at all the movies and television shows about infectious disease, and, and, it, and it seems really exciting to walk around in hazmat suits and BL4 labs. <laughs> and I think that was feeding my need for some level of excitement and the adrenaline rush I sought. But it, it you know, was really interesting to me and, and continues to be interesting you know to me to this day infectious disease and who, who would have thought 25 yeah, years be later careful what you wish for exactly, we'd be where we are now <laughs> <laughs> soaking in it every day and then the end of my career at davis i did a brief stint in, in graduate school before i realized that you know while i while i love the sciences there was a, a multitude of different directions i could go in and so i, I decided to figure that out while I started working and, and, and it led me to my, my first job. That right there is exactly why we're having this conversation <laughs> because I, I think I went to graduate school at least a decade before you when biotech was just getting started and I didn't really see all the opportunities. It was really going to academia or I don't know what. <laughs> and so I stuck around graduate school too long okay. knowing that I should be doing something else and business was not on my mind at that point either. Did you so you did, you know, go to graduate school for a while, and then you got your first job at Biorad? Yes, yes. How, I, how did that happen? So it actually happened through a personal connection. So my my roommate in undergrad, whom, who I maintained as a friend, his father was the head of manufacturing at Biorad Laboratories. And just I, I knew him through visiting his house and his home, and, and I reached out to him to, as I did several other people for informational interviews. Just so happened they had a job in the manufacturing organization in quality control, testing a lot of the specialty biologicals that they used either in raw materials or finished goods for their life science tools business. So I needed money after I decided that graduate school wasn't the path. I had to earn a living. So I, I joined, joined Biorad effectively out of my undergraduate degree and figured while I'm there, I can put a little more thought to what I want to do when I grow up. Yeah. So thing one, if you're taking notes, <laughs> don't forget those connections, always important. Absolutely. And then two, so you found a job where your science was directly, you didn't go right into marketing. No, I did not. I did not. And then how did that transition happen? So within the, the quality control group, you think you're just testing products, which a large degree of your time is, but there are come moments where there might be a problem with a protocol that ultimately leads to a back order for a business. And then suddenly research and development gets involved. The product marketing teams get involved. And it took about six months, but I found myself in the, in the crosshairs of a $700,000 back order for a product because I kept failing the product because it wasn't meeting specs. So everyone wanted to know what was wrong. <laughs> I'm sitting there, this rookie out of undergrad saying, well, yeah. the test just fails. And but being in those meetings gave me a bit of exposure to the R&D organization. People got to know me. I helped them work through the problems uh, and issues. And so developing that 
kind of that reputation of being flexible, being willing to work a little bit more, willing to engage with other functions to find solutions. I did that, you know, pretty regularly over the course of the two years I spent in the quality control team. And, and that kind of got the attention of the R&D organization saying, oh, hey, he looks like he knows how to think through problems. He can think creatively. And so I ended up moving from the quality control group into an R&D position about two years after I started. Wow. I cannot imagine the pressure. I'm guessing 24 years old and like <laughs> holding up $700,000 worth of stuff. Yep. And I'd be sitting there going, I hope I'm right. I yeah. think I'm right. But oh my exactly. gosh, what if I'm not? Oh, trust me, that thought went through my head a lot. Oh, man. <laughs> All right. So then, so now you're moving to R&D one yep. step closer to marketing, the mm -hmm. people that, you know, are trying a little bit closer. Mm -hmm. Were you starting to map out a, a path then? Or you just said, oh, that looks interesting. I'd like to do that. I think at that point I was still thinking, all right, research and development sounds more interesting than quality control. Quality control, you're following protocol procedure, right? So there's not as much creative thought. And I felt that being part of product development, you know, would be really interesting. And that was in my first three or four months within product development on, on the R&D side, that's when I got much more exposure through project teams. So that's when I started getting invited to project meetings where you had product marketing, you had manufacturing quality in there as well. And so I could see the dynamic of the group and understand at a high level how product marketing fit. Because at that time I thought marketing was, oh, you make a brochure, a flyer, an advertisement, yay. And a lot of people do. And then that gave me the exposure to the product marketing people really representing the customer, representing the commercial um, teams and determining and deciding what a, how do you get from an idea to a actual product. And so that was, you know, pretty interesting to me. And so over you know that, that two-year period in R&D, I spent a bit of time where I could water cooler chat or break room, just finding the product marketers and asking them questions about their jobs, what they do. And, and I just educated myself through just asking questions in my kind of spare time. Line two on your checklist. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> talk to the product market. Talk to people. Find out what they do. Mm -hmm. I've made that mistake of not doing that in some places, and I wish I had yep. to get to just find out what's your job, what do you like about it, and not just for me to go into that job, but like, how can I help you? What's important to you? What mm -hmm. needs to work for you? Absolutely. And, and I think my inquisitive nature, and I did ask some of those questions, hey, how do you wish your job could be easier? How do the project teams work? And how could we make them work better? And that got the attention of the leadership of the marketing organization. I think that made me a, for lack of a better word, an acquisition target <laughs> for the marketing organization of, hey, this guy's technical. He knows his stuff. He's curious. He's wants to drive improvement. He might be a good you know, person to bring on to our team. Yeah. Curious has become my favorite word. In fact, this is the third time that's come up in the last 24 hours for me. And I said, curiosity is a superpower. If you don't realize it, if you can express it, you will get people's attention. Of course, no such thing as a stupid question, but that desire to know what's going on with other people, products, projects, anything, how things work. Mm -hmm is hugely valuable, I think. Right? Oh, absolutely. And I think you know, if you have a science or technical background, that kind of education just drives curiosity. And it's a really valuable characteristic to have really in any industry, in any position. If you don't stop to ask why and try to understand how something works or why something's happening, you, you end up just in stasis and not really moving forward. And the world moves past you. So the more you can ask 
thoughtful questions and curious questions, the more information you can get to implement whatever change you need to make an impact or to drive a business forward or, or change a process. Yeah. If you get really good at asking questions, you can become a podcaster. So. <laughs> <laughs> if nothing else works out. Did you do certain things to map out? Did from to move from any of your positions along the entire path? Did you do certain things to map out? What do I need to do to get to the next thing? I want to do that. What do I need to do? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Again, I think I applied some of my scientific kind of background in education. So a little bit of observation and seeking out how to gain the knowledge that I felt I needed to move through an organization. Again, through different types of exposure to different types of meetings, whether they were marketing all hands meetings or strategy meetings, understanding the considerations of different functions. What is important to finance? What is important to operations? What is important to the commercial organizations? And understanding from that point, okay, what sorts of experiences do I need to give me the skill sets to, to move through an organization, whether that be coursework. So I did some independent coursework at Berkeley in the evenings, whether it was economics or finance. The company obviously had education programs where I could go to, I think it was the American Marketing Association, I think. I don't know if that still exists, but so I, I self-identified what I thought was needed and necessary and just read, studied, learned, and just added kind of different elements of my of knowledge that, that helped me. That's the other thing that I find attractive about your career, because when I got done with not liking graduate school, the last thing I wanted to do was go to more school. So an MBA was like off the list, right? Sure, yeah. I don't even care. Like after eight years in graduate school, it's only two more. No, I'm done. So you found a path to get education outside of work mm -hmm. and inside of work. Unfortunately, I had a company that seemed to support that, mm -hmm. yeah. but didn't say, oh, I have to get an MBA. Yeah. Obviously, you've gotten to where you are mm -hmm. without that, which I think is good news for a lot of people mm -hmm. who, like me, I just don't want to do that. Yeah, a lot of my education was experiential, right, on the job, learning. I think Biorad was where I started. I certainly was interested in, in cultivating homegrown knowledge, expertise, talent. And we're pretty supportive as an organization, meaning making sure they manage people's education through, through, through work and weren't terribly concerned with a, a formal business degree as long as you executed uh, well and made good decisions. Yeah, I think the world's moving in that direction. Maybe not. I always hear the, con, you know, how would I say it? The different opinions that you can't get anywhere without a formal education now and yet there's so many people doing more things on their own. That's just an observation. Yeah. What about mentors? Did you have specific mentors that helped you or you know, broadly people that you tapped into as needed? I think people I tapped into as needed. I don't, I, I never had any formal mentors. Probably my single greatest life mentor was my father. He, interestingly, he had a, a PhD in kind of organizational design and management. So human resources. So I learned a lot about management and leadership skills from him. Granted, a lot of academic, an academic approach didn't always apply one-to-one -one into a, a corporate experience, but he provided me a lot of guidance through some really challenging times, like peer-to-manager type changes or department-to-department -department type changes, which was really useful. I, I was really fortunate to have one uh, manager that I stuck with for probably seven years who was 
the best manager I've ever had. And I learned an enormous amount from her. Not necessarily the hard skills, but a lot of the leadership and soft skills, the storytelling, things that people don't necessarily think about or consider in leadership and management that are really critical. Yeah, absolutely. I've had one or two of those as well. And, and honestly, it's just fun to watch those people when they're really yeah. good at something. You go, oh, oh absolutely. Man. Like how they work a room and everybody goes, yeah, whatever. Yep. And work a room is probably not a nice way to put it. Like just their skill at asking things or whatever yes. it is. The, 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 the ability to influence and compel people to take action or align with your vision yeah, through storytelling, through data-based assertions and statements is incredibly powerful. And she was masterful at that. And so you're right. I'd sit there in meetings just like, wow, <laughs> she's, she's <laughs> taking notes. I'm like, she's so good at this. And so I think from a, probably the single biggest positive impact on my career was working for her for those years. Nice. Mm -hmm. So you've made two moves since BioRad. So when you, and you into pretty significant positions, what do you do in the first 90 days, which my one of my favorite managers told me when I moved on to another company, like, this is a window where you have the opportunity to establish who you are and how things are going to be done. So do you have a 90-day, I don't want to say plan, but things that you think about, you're going to make an impact. I've got a 90-day philosophy. Interestingly, I actually have a very worn copy of the first 90 days it's a book yeah. <laughs> that i read i've read three or four times transitioning between departments and teams or from you know one company to the next i actually got a fresh copy from the hr team coming from bd to, to fluid i'm so it's I've got two copies now but nice. some of the lessons that, that are covered at a high level with that with that book are good lessons things like just don't assume what worked in a prior role will work in a new role it's not as easy as lift and shift or copy, cut, and paste. You, you really need to take the time when you come into a new organization to understand this, really to do a SWOT analysis on the new organization. What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? You can get a decent amount from an interview process, but you really don't know until you, you dig in your first you know, 30 days to understand where are the shining stars, where are the warts, and that'll give you a really good lay of the land in terms of where to start start your work. Understanding what are, what are the goals of the company? Is it a growth-oriented company? And that, that to some degree, is going to determine your approach and some of your first moves. I think early wins are really important. And you can get some early wins in the first 60 to 90 days, whether it's improving a process, creating a new way of analyzing some important data that drives action. That's going to be really essential also in, in establishing credibility. Because if you can establish early credibility, it'll allow you after that first 90 days to really chart your course and make a, a larger impact and people will get behind you. Yeah. I have to shout out to Taia Urgeta who recommended that book to me. Okay. She was the manager I'm talking about. She was on the second episode of this podcast. Okay. I recommend everybody go listen to it. And I'm reminding myself right now to put a link to that book in the show notes for this episode. And then the thing she told me when I got to Thermo was, and she was my manager at Varian before I got to Thermo. And then the day I got to Thermo, she left. Oh no. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> but before she left or she announced that she was leaving, yeah. I had a couple, couple more weeks with her. She said to call your shot, like Babe Ruth. Say, this is what I'm gonna do in the first 90 days. Tell somebody like, this is one thing that has to happen. And then you get that done and then people go, oh, wow. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he might know what he's talking about. <laughs> No, it's, yeah, you're right. It's making a declarative statement about what you're going to do. After you learn what you could do is really important. I think this time around was really interesting for me in that at the very end of my, for the end of my first 90 days was middle of March of 2020, where it was kind of like, all right, I'm ready to go. And then the whole world changes. So it's oh, okay, reset. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> do I get another 90 for a pandemic? Exactly. What advice would you give? Because a, a lot of marketers come from science and they may or may not get some formal education and they just slide into it. What advice do you give those people that are interested in business or scientists who thinking about making that leap? First of all, and this is one of the mistakes I made, I, I, although I had the benefit of spending time early on in manufacturing operations and then R&D and then going into marketing, don't discount the value of spending some time, say, in a commercial organization or a support organization. I think it can be a little bit scary sometimes to move into a position as a sales associate or as a field application specialist. But that kind of experience is considered gold in a lot of uh, organizations, especially in product marketing organizations, where you need to have the knowledge or understanding of what it's like to stand in front of a customer, what it's like to support a customer, what it's like to represent the company through a product. Getting that kind of experience, whether you do it as a job or spend, I spent a lot of time in my first three years of product marketing, working, doing day in the life, travel with the sales sales uh, associate, doing customer calls, understanding kind of the challenges of doing a demo and having a product fail in front of a customer. It's <laughs> feeling that stress is you know really helpful in terms of putting yourself in the shoes of that team. So I think, I think experience in other functions is, is really good, really important. And it can be even technical support as well, fielding customer calls. I know a lot of people who came from R&D to technical support and then and into marketing, and, and they had really successful careers as well. Developing good relationships and very good transparent relationships is essential. Finance was a weak point of mine, so I worked really closely with my finance partner. Finance can be viewed as the scary people that want to bust you for doing the wrong thing, but they're really there to help you and, and help guide you. And I learned an enormous amount about, about finance that was essential in, in my, my moving through the organization to make bigger, more bold recommendations. Learning what are the essential elements of a business plan? How do you read an income statement or a balance sheet? What is net present value, cost of capital? Why is cash flow important? Those sorts of things, as you move through an organization and, and influence larger or greater decisions, those are important things to know. Granted, those aren't the only things to know, but knowing finance, at least at business education leadership level, is, is really important. Yeah, I can imagine. Like, uh, <laughs> that wouldn't be my strong suit, but... <laughs> I fully appreciate what those guys do and why why they have to be there. Okay. Well, Steve Coolidge, this has been super helpful, I think, to a lot of people. And I, just a pleasure for me. My cheeks hurt because it's just all good stuff. And yeah. so I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to everybody today. I have to let everybody know, no one will be surprised that I know Steve through swimming. Our kids <laughs> swam together. We live in the same neighborhood. Yep. So I got to get that out there, but thank you so much. Yeah, I really appreciate the invitation, Chris, and it's been good to connect with you. Likewise. Well, there you have it. Step-by-step -step instructions for your career and a backup plan for starting a podcast in case other things don't work out. Speaking of which, 
Because of the pandemic, you may be looking for new ways to reach your customers in the absence of walking the halls or traveling to trade shows. There's still plenty of room in the podcast world. There's so many stories to tell and people, your customers, waiting to hear them. If you want to know what that looks like, shoot me an email, chris at lifesciencemarketingradio.com or visit the website and hit the link and schedule something on Calendly. As always, if you like the show, please share it with your colleagues, and I'll be back in a couple of weeks with another smart life science marketer. Bye-bye.